Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This podcast is produced on Anchor, where you can record, edit, and publish all from your smartphone. You can find the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platforms. Stepping to the batter's box. Welcome and thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Funny side story before we start the interview here with my guest is I was sitting at my computer a couple nights ago and I was thinking of ways to further this podcast, make our audience a little bit bigger, and how to really move it forward. And I had a little bit of liquid courage sitting at my desk, and I decided that I am going to send messages and emails to a whole bunch of people, not expecting to hear back from anybody, people that I think are way too big for our little podcast that could, that I never expected to hear back from. And the guest today was the first to get back to me, and I am super excited and surprised that he reached out to be a guest on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast because he is way above my pay grade when it comes to paying guests. So I want to introduce Dubuque County and Dyersville Beckman legend, you and I Hall of Famer and All-American, 12th round selection of the Florida Marlins in 2001. He was an 11-year veteran playing professional baseball, member of Team USA in 2005 and 2006, and the current director of baseball operations for the University of Iowa, Nick Ungs. Wow, that was a mouthful, but welcome to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's uh, great to be on the show. I've, I've been actually a, a fan of this, and uh, it's, it's nice to be on. Thanks. I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate you listening, Nick. And like I said, I... All due respect and everything, thank you for agreeing to be a guest. You were the first to get back to me, and I really did not expect anybody to to get back to me. I'm still hoping, I'm still holding out for Nick Swisher, formerly of the Oakland A's. So, Nick Swisher, if you listen to the Buke Area Baseball podcast, get back to me. We want to have you on. Nick, my first question for you. Um, are you the jack of all trades and master of or expert of nothing with the uh, director of baseball operations? I see that title a lot, and I really have no idea what that job entails. So what do you do? Well, I get this uh, question a lot, actually. But uh, um, when, I was, when I was interviewing for the job and uh, being that my previous job the last three years was in IT – and kind of running our channel program and, uh, um, you know, looking to ways to get back up to Iowa. And then Coach Heller kind of reached out to me. Um, you know, I wanted to kind of 
get back into this uh, into this industry a little bit, and and the operations job gives me a little bit of both. It gives me the business side along with um, kind of the the coaching and uh, being around uh, baseball on a daily basis. So some things that I do, I guess, is I do the budget. Um, our time management plan every single second of every single day, coach Heller and I have to sit down and we have to turn this in to uh, Iowa before, um, like for this fall, every single day from the moment they get on campus to the moment they leave at Christmas, we have to turn every single second in into, uh, for NCAA approval. And then, um, I do all of our, uh, make sure all of our tech is renewed and up to speed. Um, I do contracts, hotels, um, plan all the trips, make sure that all 43 people in the travel party, um, all compliance, all boxes are checked. Um, was it a, <clears throat> there's a lot, a lot of red tape when you're dealing with the NCAA. I can send you the, the, the 562 page book and you can kind of leaf through it. But, uh, um, that's, a, that's a lot of the stuff I do. I do have, uh, I run all of our camps and, uh, make sure that we're, um, being able to uh, produce good camps for uh, uh, everybody around. And then we do have a manager's program that, I, um, that I'm that i in charge of as well. And um, <clears throat> we currently have 22 managers. They're split up into three different um, kind of tactics. Maybe these guys are, are the guys that just didn't have the talent, uh, but they still had the, the desire and they love the game of baseball. So we have guys that are on field. We have uh, scouting and, and tech. Um, and then we have our data analysis team that helps us do our, our pet player profiles. So, when you break down your job for me, I'm going to pass on the on the 566 page book. Even though I am a reading teacher, I am going to pass on that one. But you seem like you have a job where it goes unnoticed to the average fan and probably even the players. But if you screw up or make a mistake, everybody knows that it was your fault. Is that kind of what I'm reading into this? Yes, um, definitely. So um, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, um, I'm currently planning a wedding with my fiance. And uh, so I'm used to having every minute uh, the bus leaves at this at 52 we're going to get there. It's going to be seven miles away. That's how long it's going to take. And that's the way um, we're kind of planning this. And then um, so she's getting a little annoyed of how uh, precise I have to be. But you're exactly right. It does. It sticks out like a sore thumb when um, when I'm off. I did read a couple months ago that air traffic controller is the most stressful job. But I'm actually going to say director of baseball operations is, is more stressful than that. I want to say congratulations on the engagement. Is it something that had to be adjusted because of the coronavirus or is it planned for 2021 anyway? Uh, no, it's uh, we're we're all on schedule right now with our fingers crossed. It's at the end of October, so um, hopefully uh, everything will be um, as normal as it can be by that time. Best of luck to you guys. Now, when I go back to your job, are you ever in uniform? Do you get to coach from the dugout or be on the field during games? Or are you strictly a behind-the-scenes guy? So um, <clears throat> when during the games, it comes in, and I, I'm just another – uh, kind of another, uh, would you say coach? So I would say for all the baseball listeners out there, I'm like the bench coach. I'm, you know, I'm not at third base. I'm not in the dugout. I mean, I'm in the dugout. I throw BP, uh, Marty Sutherland and I split, split the groups. Um, 
And uh, so he can hit fungal. So he throws the first couple groups and then I have the next. So I'm in, I'm in uniform and uh, I'm just, I'm on the bench. There's a lot of things that are going on, uh, believe it or not. Um, when, uh, you know, when Marty and Coach Heller are, are trying to, uh, you know, see, hey, who's down at the pen? Um, you know, I'm looking up splits and stats. I'm just kind of ha- their eyes and ears of what's going on, um, making sure that, hey, there's a lefty in the pen, making sure our right-hand batters, just kind of helping everybody out because sometimes you do get a little bit tired, um, t- uh, focused, uh, a little tunnel vision going on. So um, just kind of I'm keeping uh, my own book that is adding uh, kind of uh, what I see um, to our scouting report. Um, and then we kind of go from there. We can kind of make adjustments uh, from a bad to bad. I'd say, hey, this is what I saw last time up or, or someone's tipping a pitch or whatnot. So um, I think the best – Thing is during the games I'm more like the, the bench coach so you are right that you do have your hand in both things because I believe before you came to Iowa you worked in the business world with the tech industry right that's correct yes and I now yeah and before that you were doing some things with baseball so now you're doing the best of of both worlds how's your arm holding up after uh 11 12 years of professional baseball are you still okay at throwing BP or you can you only last a couple hitters no, um, you would, uh, no, actually it's not too bad. Uh, my arm was fixed. I had surgery toward the end of my career, so I'm fine. But, um, <clears throat> but it was not something that I did the first year here. Uh, I couldn't do it. I had to kind of, uh, um, I had to kind of practice to be honest with you. I can remember, um, uh, we were in Vegas and, uh, Justin Jenkins and I were down in the cages. Um, this was early, early before the game even started. And he was, his dad's a coach and he was a junior outfielder at the time. And he's like, just got to think about this. And he, we were kind of going through stuff because some it's the motion. It kind of gets in your head a little bit. Um, and there's, there's times that you can lose it and you can lose it fast too. So um, it's one of those things that like you, you do have to practice. Uh, I always talk to Jim McGrain and he could not do it. And it seems like the pitchers that were, have always a hard time of uh, trying to actually hit bats when the whole career we're trying to fi- figure out a way to miss bats. My my former players would say that I am probably the worst at throwing BP in the history of coaching. Um, and if there is no catcher with the target, I don't stand a chance. Now, do you have your hand in recruiting at all, or is that strictly up to Marty Sutherland, who's the recruiting coordinator at Iowa? So um, if, if you met Marty, Marty knows everything. Marty can tell you um, – uh, what I threw him our sophomore year against Cascade on the second of bat, like he'll tell you exactly what it is. So him being a recruiting coordinator is right up his uh, his kind of his wheelhouse. Is he remembers everything, and um, so he he's he's our he knows all the kids. He sends out um, you know Coach Heller and Coach Lunn, and then you know the NCAA has rules on that. So like when there only can be three of the coaches out. So what happens is let's say. Um, someone wants to come on campus and see it Well, Marty and everybody's out, then we'll, we'll kind of, uh, Jimmy, um, Franco said myself, will kind of show the people around, um, on campus during the summers while their guys is out. But during, um, recruits during, uh, the fall, um, we're all kind of have our hands in it. Um, Marty's, uh, Marty's the big, uh, <laughs> the big guy that keeps, uh, everything, um, rolling during that. And then, you know, we make sure that um, we all get our, our, our touches and be able to so they feel comfortable um, for, for the whole staff. Now, if you had to give some advice to little leaguers and high schoolers that listen to this, 
What are some red flags that you might look for or you might see when you or the University of Iowa or any college is recruiting kids? So, I mean, there's, you know, I think that one of the big things is, um, you know, you have to have a certain a type of skill set to be uh, to play for a power five um, conference. And, you know, in Iowa, I mean, just for instance, our whole infield throws 90 plus across the infield. So just that, you know, um, is if you're throwing 82, you know, 83 across the infield, you know, I'm not we're not saying you're not a bad player. You just might not fit in with um, with our program. Right. So. On the other sides of that, I think it just comes down to if you have those talents um, and you do stick out, I think it's it's what type of person you are. Um, does it look like you're having fun playing the game? Um, are you flying around? Um, if uh, someone behind you makes a, makes an error, do you throw your hands up? Are you in their face? You know, what kind of teammate are you? And I think um, – you know, we don't want that person that points the finger. And then, you know, and the, believe it or not, when I was actually coaching in um, down in Georgia, you know, one thing that you don't want every kid to suffer from is if their parents are sitting there yelling at the coaches from the screen and stuff like that. Because we want we want coaches to coach and we want parents to be parents, you know, and we want them to trust us as we're trusting them. So, you know, I just, you just don't want uh, the parents to have a bad influence on, on what we're going to do with the kid as well. I can talk about when I sometimes coach teams or coach against programs, you can tell the programs that have a positive atmosphere because there's a different feel in the stands and the dugout than when you play maybe a team that has a negative atmosphere or there's players that are not playing that they think should be. So I I like that you tied in um, the positivity and how you don't want families or fans yelling at players or coaches during the game. Besides um, players having the five tools. What what's Iowa looking for when they want to bring players to play baseball there? You know, I mean, you know, everybody's kind of, uh, you know, you're looking for. Um, it, it depends on on your needs as well, right? Um, you know, is it is it a guy? Is it something that we can kind of uh, we can work with? Do they have tools? Do you have attributes? Um, are you tall? But if we can kind of clean up your delivery a little bit. Um, is going to jump. Uh, for instance, we had a kid that came from junior college. She's six five. He was eighty eight, eighty nine, and um, we just kind of cleaned up a, a couple of different things, and he went up to ninety six. So, I mean, those are things like you know um, of things of what you can use to kind of get these guys to the next level. I mean, everybody wants the guy that's that's thrown ninety seven right off the bat, but at the end of the day, we want those guys that, that are full of potential. And they're very coachable as well, you know, that, that they're, they, they don't know it all. They, they think that they have room to grow, you know, and uh, just making sure they fit our culture as well. Now, I got really back into Twitter a couple of years ago, and I always see the hashtag Hellerball. Now, I'm an Oakland A's fan. I know what Moneyball is. You, you buy wins, not players. You don't ever bunt. You don't ever steal a base. If they bunt, you always get the out at first. But what, what's Hellerball? I think Hellerball means a, a lot of different things. Um, you know, I, I played for Coach Heller um, a long time ago as well at Northern Iowa. So and it was still the same thing kind of there. Um, kind of some things that I think of what Hellerball is, I think it's, it's, it's worth ethic. It's a uh, passion. 
adjustability, coachability, um, you know, being a good person, being a good teammate, um, you know, doing the right thing on and off the field, player development, um, you know, and basically flying around. You know, we we don't want to uh, we want to make sure a heller ball to me is like we're we're so ecstatic. We're grateful to be here. And then we're, we're going to we're going to battle with everything we have for everybody that's wearing that Iowa and everybody that likes to represent that. So I think that's what heller ball is. Now, I've never met Coach Heller before, but it looks like he's a very loyal guy because I know Marty, I believe, played for him. Marty Sutherland played for him and then coached for him at UNI, correct? That's, that's correct. And yes. then you also are a former player of his, so it seems like he takes guys that he knows has those characteristics that he's looking for in his players and then adds them to the staff. Anything about Coach Heller uh, that you'd like to add before we go and we learn about your journey to where you are. You know, I, I think, uh, I think coach Heller is, um, if you met him for the first time or the hundredth time, um, he's going to be your best friend. You're going to feel like he's your best friend that he's, he stand up at, at your wedding with him. Um, he's, he's that type of guy, you know, he's, uh, always has a smile on his face. He's a, a guy that, um, you know, he's, he just loves what he does and he loves representing the Iowa Hawkeyes. And I think that's been a part, um, you know, a big dream of his for the, for his whole, whole career since he's been up at our upper Iowa and being an Iowa guy himself. Yeah, that's good that uh, he was an Iowa guy and you can tell he's really taken every program he's ever been to, to um, legendary status and has gotten him recognized nationally. Now, I want to go back to the cornfields of Dyersville, Iowa, where legendary film Field of Dreams was shot. At what age did you, when you were playing baseball, you re- did you realize that you had a special gift? Um, I don't know if it was a gift. I think I just loved the play. Um, when I was like seven or eight, I can vividly remember a story, um, that, so, I mean, I, I was a very needy child, I guess you could say my, my mother and my father just tell me, I mean, always had to be playing catch with me. Um, my brother was opposite. He could go play by himself and, and figure stuff out, but not me. So my, so we played a catch a lot and I remember playing, um, one time and we were, uh, we were, I think we were seven and eight and nobody could catch very well. And some people couldn't throw as well. And I was getting really mad and I was yelling at the kids. And I remember my mom grabbing me on the way home and told me that if I ever, ever, ever do that again, that I will never play again. And I need to be um, more supportive and be a better, per- be a better teammate to these guys. And I remember that, that conversation like it was yesterday. And so it wasn't, more like the ability. I think it was just more about some fun. It was it was fun to do. Now, would your fiance say that you're a, a ne- going to be a needy husband, or is that quality that characteristic about you change? Because my wife says that I'm I'm a I'm a very needy husband. I, I would say definitely I have my times. Yes, yes, I would. Now, Dyersville is is known for the field of dreams, but they also do have a nationally known. Um, high school coach who passed a couple years ago and you went to Beckman High School and played for Hall of Fame coach Tom Jink Jr. How did he help you take your game to the next level? Um, You know, uh, you know, even prior to going to Beckman, you know, like when I, I just remember being sitting in eighth grade and watching, you know, Beckman play and, and watching this, this tradition 
um, of when back before that and you know uh, early 90s 80s um how it all came about just wanted to be a part of that and um i think you know just with the love of the game we played a lot of games when we were nine and ten um i was we were reminiscing actually with uh, danny martin and uh he was and billy martin and tommy martin actually we were all kind of talking the other day and um you know when, when we were I think when I was nine and 10, we played 92 games, you know, you play all your travel leagues and, and uh, um, you play also at your in town ball. So we played a lot of baseball, but one thing I think that that coach Jink did once we got to that level was he, he took the pressure off of the game. You know, there's a lot of stress that comes in, you know, like you're coming into a winning, a winning uh, tradition program that, you know, if you don't, you know, at least make it to play Cascade to go to state or make it that or go down to state, you know, that it wasn't a very good season. You know, I mean, these were the things that you thought of. And what I think he did was you're going to put so much pressure on yourself. He took out the rest of it. He's like, you know what, let's be efficient. Let's go get your 21 outs. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, be yourself. And I think he, you know, he just kind of took out the outside noise, um, and let everybody play. I've made two connections since I've been talking to you. You shared how Coach Heller, whether it's your first time meeting him or your 150 time meeting him, he always treats you like uh, you're his best friend. I I had that experience with Coach Jink. I was coaching freshman baseball at West Dubuque, and I was talking to um, Connor Klosterman in the third base's coach's box before the game, and Coach Jink came out, started talking to me, and it was my first time I'd ever talked to him, but it was like we were best friends in high school, and we were seeing each other at our our 10-year reunion for the first time. And I just could not believe how personable he was. I could not believe how funny he was. And he had myself and Connor Klosterman practically rolling in the third base's coach's box just by how squirrely of a guy he was. And looking at him on the field and watching him on the field, I had a completely different expectation for him than when I actually uh, met him. And then you brought up the Martin boys. Now, I played... Those teams were there called the Dyersville Tigers, correct? Those uh, little league yes, teams. That, yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was um, a little bit after me. Yes, but yeah, yeah, the Dyersville Tigers with the Detroit Tigers hats. Everybody was always so um, uh, envious of them because they were the only little league teams that would wear uh, Major League Baseball fitted hats. We all had the Asbury fishnet hats, where Dyersville yeah. had the oh, Detroit yeah. Tigers hat with the Detroit D. But then um, I went on to play with Danny, uh, Perfect Game, their first Perfect Game League. They had a Dubuque County team. But um, does anybody ever give Billy Martin a hard time uh, for his appearance in the final season? Uh, um, no, <laughs> they don't at all. Um, you know, we were, uh, you know, they're saying we need a, a guy, uh, you know. I mean, it was, it was great. It was, it was a great uh, thing that he got to do because I remember uh, him calling me um, – when I was actually playing when he did that. So he was, it was a, it was outstanding time for me. I think he enjoyed it. Yeah. I was watching. I had no idea he was in the movie. I was I'm like, I think that's Billy Martin. So then I quick pulled out all my, uh, all my Beckman contacts to see if it was. And sure enough, um, it was him, but back to you, Nick, um, after uh, high school, you went on to the university of Northern Iowa 
and you played for the defunct uh, UNI baseball team. What feelings or emotions do you have knowing that you had helped build something that was so strong that is no longer there? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. And then, uh, you know, just with, I think it's because now that there's only one division one baseball in Iowa, you know, and I think that takes away a lot of opportunity for a lot of kids in Iowa, um, that have a chance to play, you know, at the division one level, um, you know, and that, that's, that's the sad part about it. You know, I, I wish, uh, you know, you could take, you know, later on, I could still go to a UNI game. And I, I think this, that having that, that um, rivalry within the state was always good, you know, and, you know, I even wish Iowa state had had their team back too. It just, like I said, it just gives um, Iowa kids a little bit more of an opportunity to play, um, you know, for a division one program. Yeah. It's sad that we aren't able to keep that local talent around and we can make trips to go watch them play at the next level. A, A frustration, Nick, that I had when preparing for this interview is forgetting how good you were. And then when I was looking at your stats and pulling information and remembering how good you were, a frustration of mine is I never went out and really watched you pitch. I would have liked to have seen you pitch a lot more. But when you were at the University of Northern Iowa in 2001, you went 11-2 and with an ERA of 2.48. And this, that was with those hot bats. I believe we played with the drop fives. And you had 114 strikeouts. You only walked 14 guys in that entire season. The school won a school record 35 games and went to nationals for the, I'm sorry, went to regionals for the first time. What was that season like for you and your teammates? Uh, well, uh, Marty Sutherland was on that team. Um, Tommy Martin was on that team. Um, and, and being said, there was, I think, out of uh, my Legion team or even guys from Iowa. I think there was almost like 28 kids from Iowa on that team, um, which was very special. And, and that's one of the biggest things as well is like, I think, you know, that season alone was probably, I would say a coming out party because when I got to um, division one, I I needed to learn a lot, you know? Um, I mean, you're, everybody is at the top of, uh, top of their game when they you play division one baseball everybody was that guy in in high school right and then now you get to there and there's just a lot of different things and I think after my freshman year I got a little taste my my sophomore year I kind of uh had a little ups and downs you know our defense wasn't as good I, I was just a little bit immature I think and I think I matured um you know as we played and uh it kind of we actually talk about this coach Heller and I about um, I would, I didn't know I was doing it. And, you know, it's about perception at the times the way you think. And, you know, I would always, before I'd be warming up, it was like, Oh, how you feel? And I'd be like, Oh, you know, a little stiff, I'm tired or my back's sore. And it was at the time you don't think about it, but it was a pre-excuse. This is what I did my sophomore year. And, um, you know, and he said, anytime I hear you have a pre-excuse before a game, your junior year, you're going to go pick up rocks and fill it up with a bucket, fill rocks up in this bucket until it's all the rocks are off the field because he wanted the, our field to be immaculate as well. We didn't have turf at that time. So, you know, I'm like, oh, shoot. So it just kept uh, this little thing in my head of being like, hey, um, if I feel like I – if I tell guys that I'm feeling – and good, you know, guys like, Hey, I feel that I'm like, I feel great. 
now their confidence was a lot higher. They played at a higher level and, you know, everything kind of came together. And I think um, it just helped me mature as a player. And, you know, it turned out to be a really great season. It shows that right now in education and sports, positive mindset is the term and the phrase that everybody's throwing around nowadays. And it seems like Coach Heller was doing that way before it was it was the major focus with the high confidence in that. Now, when you look back to that 2001 season, what were some of those memorable games that, that you remember that when you and the, the boys get together from that team or in quarantine, you have your Zoom conversations? What are those games that you always come back to and share a little bit about those? Um, well, it was, uh, I remember... So there was, uh, you know, Illinois State comes in, Neil Cox versus myself um, for any Chicago White Sox fans, Cubs fans as well. So we beat him. Um, had I, I got to play them, play them at Riverfront. Front. Um, and then, you know, we go to Southwest Missouri State, which is Missouri State. Um, they have uh, Ryan Howard at first base, right? Um, and like you said, it was dropped three bats at that time. Freshman year, we had the drop five but okay. my junior year dropped three but they're still hot and uh um you know trying to face uh uh ryan howard um with those bats was a little dangerous too so he saw a lot a lot of change-ups at that time um but i think it was we were we would we played four games in conference so um you would play your friday night game and then you would play a nine and a seven on saturday and then you would play one on sunday so we were kind of a little bit up and down i think um josh hobble um from dubuque hempstead had a great season that year too and uh um we were just kind of uh um you know we a lot of the teams are really good so we kind of backed our way into the conference tournament and then going in there we were, the, we were the final person to get into the Valley Tournament. We had to go to Wichita State, play at Wichita State in front of their fans. And um, <clears throat> Kyder and I both had a no-hitter going through like five innings. This game was taking like 45 minutes. And then I gave up a bomb to Sorensen. Um, I think it was like in the sixth. And then um, we were going – I think we were down – I think we were down one going to the ninth. And uh, – um, Ryan Bruner hit a base hit, and then another guy hit a base hit. Two outs, and McEachern to uh, the Valley um, Closer of the Year, our reliever of the year. Um, he kept on fouling, fouling things off. Next thing you know, he hits a double, scores two. We end up, uh, <clears throat> we end up taking the lead. Um, uh, was it Todd Ryma comes up to me and goes, "Should we go to the bullpen, or do you want this?" And I said. This is my game. I'm, I'm going. So I end up going out and throwing, I think, my ninth complete game of the year. And uh, we end up beating Wichita State on on, our, on their home field. So it was. it's always nice to go in there and make them guys go through the losing bracket. It, it also shows how you matured as a person and as a player because – who knows, maybe your freshman, uh, sophomore year, Coach Rima would have said, hey, do you want to go back out there? And you may have been quick to pass it off onto somebody else. So that threat of you not having to go pick rocks up uh, in the dugout or on the field, may, maybe that uh, that positive mindset puts you in that position to want that game to go out and get a, another complete game. Now, we know that college baseball is, is known for their long road trips. What, what are some uh, of the laugh out loud stories that almost sound like they're too good to be true? Um, for a college, it was. Um, so let me see. College, it was, 
you know, there's, we got to go a lot of different places. We, we, uh, the biggest one, I think that was sticks out the most for colleges is played in a, we played against air force. So, um, this is my first time playing in altitude. So, you know, you run in from, um, from the bullpen or you're doing a little bit of jogging and this feels like you were throwing down heaters your, your last 10 years, you know, cause the air is so thin. I don't know. A couple guys got nosebleeds. The ball's not moving at all. And, uh, um, so we go and we play three games there. Um, they have turf field snow all around the field besides on, on the turf. So we're, we're playing. It's actually nice out. So we're playing. Um, we get in, in the bus after the game, and we drive 12 hours back to back to um, you and I, and uh, we pull into uh, uh, Cedar Falls, and Coach Heller gets up and says, "All right, you got 30 minutes to get to your eight o'clock class." So we got off the bus, and there we went. So it was uh, it was one of those things that you're like, we weren't flying at Northern Iowa, so we were driving, and um, I know it came. A lot of people had to take buses, but we got to take, you know, let's take vans, but just, uh, you know, everybody's laying on the floor. You had people everywhere and um, just, uh, just a lot of, uh, you know, but you know what, that's, that's part of it. And I think, uh, I don't think it'd be the same if, um, if you didn't get to those things like that. Yeah. That really shows that he, Coach Heller, uh, valued academics and you guys truly are student athletes to not take the day off to go on a huge bus trip and then report to class 30 minutes later. Now you all, you did throw out some, some names that the listeners would recognize uh, with Ryan Howard and Neil Cotts, but was there anybody that you played with or had faced during your college career at UNI that went on to have some good major league careers? Well, um, let me see here during, uh, well, you know, once I got the pro ball, we, we got, you know, I had a lot of, uh, <clears throat> A lot of uh, incoming, uh, you know, ran into a lot of guys and became some friends with that. Um, but I think it was in, in college, it was, uh, you know, you're kind of going there. Joe Maurer, you heard of him. He was in my re- in my uh, draft class. Um, so you kind of being in the, in the region, you always heard of, um, and this was before Twitter too, but you always heard of this kid up in Minnesota that was going to go play, you know, football at Florida State. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, Peter Blake, was uh um was a guy that always kind of in Iowa that you always heard of that um you're like oh this guy this guy throws really hard he's supposed to be really good and I think um was it uh you got Neil Cotts um was it uh Clint Barmus mm. where it was a lot of guys um and then you had a lot of guys from Wichita State Brandon Salone and um uh, was it uh Hooper was a one um, that that played, but th- through college, like you kind of uh, you play so many guys, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, when you do face them in pro ball, you're like, "Whoa, um, I remember you from college." So, at the University of Northern Iowa, you were second team All American, first team All Valley, which led you to be drafted by the Florida Marlins in the twelfth round. I, I love this story about draft day because it really shows how far behind you and I were. We're similar in age, but how far technology's come in this time. Tell us what draft day was like. All right. So uh, it's um, with the draft being tomorrow, actually, uh, here um, and on TV, like uh, like it has been a couple last years. But um, I remember driving home. I had a cell phone. Um and uh, the Reds called um, prior and said, hey, we got you on the board right around the fourth, fifth round. You know, we're excited to get you. Um, 
you know, being, you know, new to all of this, you didn't know what you had teams calling you. They're asking questions. Um, I think it's more, um, they do more stuff today about testing, but, um, from personality testing, I think, um, just of what I've been a part of here at Iowa with some of our guys, but back then it was just, it was just kind of conversations. Um, if they did talk to you, um, after a game, you know, you always had to say, Hey, what color kind of hair you have? You know, do you have a weird haircut or do you have different color hair? They just wanted to kind of see what kind of person you were. Um, so, you know, the, with the Reds having me on the board, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, talk to the Diamondbacks. You know, people are calling. You're getting all these letters. And then, you know, I show up at my parents' house. And at that time, there was dial-up. So that's the way you could listen to the um, to the draft. But I didn't want to clog up the phone line because you can either be on the phone or you can be on dial-up. So we, I couldn't listen to us. So I sat in a chair in the living room at my parents' house in dead silence and sat there and um, my phone rang, you know, you're going through this roller coaster and it's, it's a, it's a great day. It's a little stressful because there, there's no guarantees. There really isn't any guarantees. And then um, I get a phone call and uh, it's like the Rockies are like, Hey, will you sign in the next round? I'm like, yeah, I didn't even know what round it was at that point. Cause I wasn't listening. And then, uh, and then I get another uh, phone call again by San Diego, like, Hey, will you sign in the next round? And I'm like, yeah, what round is it? And they're like, Oh, it's tonight. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll sign just, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden nothing. And then also one of the third person that called, I'm like, hello. And they're like, Hey, it's the Florida Marlins. Congratulations. We just took you off the board. And, and I'm like, huh? And they're like, well, we think you'd be more excited. And I'm like, no, I am. I'm really excited. So, um, but that was one of the teams that I didn't talk to at all. So it's, it's a mystery of what, uh, what's going on, um, how they're thinking. And, you know, uh, we've all kind of done a uh, fantasy football. You always have one guy, then the guy above you or two above you doesn't get picked. And then you're going to, your whole board shuffles. And I can't imagine that in real life. Now, your family couldn't splurge for cable internet, so you could listen to the draft and have your phone line free? That was not an option at that time. Oh, wow. That that really dates us. Uh, If you had a preference, what team would you have liked to have seen draft you? Well, I think growing up and watching the Cubs games with my grandpa um, um, on my mom's side, um, when I was growing up, I think everybody in the Midwest wanted to be, you know, part of the Cubs. Um, my dad's a big Dodgers fan, so that would have been another team that would have been really great. And you know, um, my aunt lives up in uh, Minnesota. We we did go to the '91 World Series uh, Game One. Um, Jack Morris threw that, and Herbeck hit the home run, pulled Ron Gant off the base. And uh, you know, those would have been the teams that I would like. But at that time, I'm just I'm just excited, and you're just ready to start that journey. Now, Nick, I went to your baseball reference page and I clicked on every single roster that you had ever played on. And you played with some pretty incredible teammates. You played with Josh Beckett, Charles Johnson, Brad Penny, Dontrell Willis, Miguel Cabrera, Adrian Gonzalez, Josh Johnson, Lorenzo Cain, and Michael Brantley were the huge names that were on the list. Pick a guy or two from the list and tell us a little bit about their work ethic and a little bit about their game that made them to be the greats in the game that we're accustomed to watching. 
Um, well, you know, Don Trell and I, we were in the North, we were in the um, Midwest League. We were in King County. Um, and he was my roommate on the road. So um, I, I just, you know, coming from here, he's from Oakland. He was in that trade with the Cubs, uh, brought a couple guys over. And, uh, you know, there was just something different about him. And I think it was, it just came down, his focus was just on a whole nother level, like his bullpens, um, the way he just prepared for games and um, the way he just went about his business. You know, it was just, it was far above anything that I've kind of seen. Um, so, you know, it was no um, no surprise of where he kind of, he just flourished and then kept on going. I think uh, <clears throat> um, with, uh, you know, Brantley and Lorenzo Cain, I actually played on the same, they were on the same team together when I was, I was actually with the Brewers. I w- I got hurt and then I came back to double A and we had like um, Gamble. We had, uh, our shortstop was, um, oh shoot, He's with, he was with the, the Royals um, for was a while. Was it Escobar? Escobar, yeah, LC's Escobar. Escobar, yep. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Maldonado was our catcher. I mean, our our whole infield um, was was ridiculous. And then the outfield was Brantley and then um, Lorenzo. And that was great because any ball in the air was just caught. It was. I mean, they were running everything down. So it's just that that's that little the you know the five tools, but then that little extra. But I think the one of the biggest things that had the biggest impact on me was my first big league camp. Is I'm throwing a bullpen to Matt Trainer, all right? If everybody knows what perseverance is, Matt Trainer was in the minor leagues for 10 years before he got called up. Um, but on one side of me, I had A.J. Burnett through 97 to 100, had probably one of the best stuffs. And then on the other side, I had Josh Beckett. They were in my they were in my work group. And all I can hear is, boom, you know, I can hear the balls and the balls popping, and I'm like, oh, shoot. So I'm just trying to throw this ball and I feel like I'm thrown into a pile of sand or a pillow and to Matt Trainer. And finally he, he comes and makes a mound visit during my bullpen. He's like, Hey man, he goes, You have really good control. Don't don't take this the wrong way, but just be yourself. Just be yourself. And he goes, I want you to lock in. And and from that on I kind of looked how their focus was to, you know, if their attention to detail was just on a whole another level. Like if the, if they, the catcher moved his glove just a little bit, they got mad and they wanted to make sure that they were on top of everything they wanted. It was just about being consistent and repeating that delivery and that feel. And uh, I think I just took that, um, you know, onto my career throughout the next how many years. AJ Burnett had one of the filthiest sliders or curveballs. I, I, I can't even remember which one it was that I would ever see watching a game and you know for the younger listeners they probably know jeremy lynn dontrell willis was the jeremy lynn of baseball when he came up he came up and he made a splash and everybody went out and bought his jersey everybody changed their wind up to be like dontrell willis and he just burst right onto the scene now Miguel Cabrera was on your list as well. Did you play with him? I know he was kind of fast tracked. So he he signed with the Marlins when he was sixteen, and then so I got to play with him. He was in Kane County at what when he was eighteen. When he was nineteen years old, he was. Uh, I, w- I went up, and it was two thousand two. I went up to the high A in the Florida State League, and he was playing third base. Um, for uh for the hammerheads with us and um just you know 
he was just a, it's a big kid, you know, he's just, he's had one of the best low ball hitters I've ever seen. And he could work it both ways um, of the field and, you know, just never got cheated. Always got his best swing off. It was, it was so good. Um, the next year he was, went to double A and he was, he got up there. He was in there. So he's what, 20 years old, 2003 was the year that they won the um, World, the World Series. Series, but he started in uh, him and Dontrell both started in double A and um, Miguel was uh, um, he was there for April and May. And even after the all-star break, he still led the, the league in doubles. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. He got fast tracked to the, to the big leagues and, and you look at now he's a first baseman, but he, was a third baseman and then he was a corner outfielder and Jack McKee and the manager at the time, I think they were just looking for places to get, to get his bat into the lineup. Now, what was, what was it like in the minor leagues? What were bus trips like? I'm sure those were probably memorable. Yeah. Well, yeah, bus trip. I mean, it's a, uh, it's like I said, you know, it's, it's a grind, you know, you're, uh, you're, um, but on the other hand, like I said, it's, it's all part of it. Um, uh, it's, uh, I guess in at the beginning, it's uh you're like oh this is this is great, and then the long the longer the trips, you're just like whoa whoa whoa, but the buses got a little nicer at sometimes. I know when we were in Double A in Jacksonville, we had these huge seats, um, and they're really cushioned, and everybody had they all reclined back, and um, that was really nice. And then as you're kind of going up, um, in in Double A when we were at the Southern League because they were so far apart, we played five game series, so we wouldn't have to travel after three games. So that made things a little bit better. Um, but just you know, hitting every kind of gas station and a truck stop along these little towns, no matter where you're at, if you're um, people always ask me, "Oh, you're from Iowa? Oh, that's the place with the big truck stop." Because we were coming always in the Midwest League, there are always people going through, and that's what the people would always stop. Um, so just kind of uh, grinding it out. When we got to AAA, um, things got a little bit different. So you're in suits, you're flying commercial yet. Uh, I was in the Pacific Coast League, so there's there's always a there's never a direct flight. So you might be going, um, you know, you're all the way in Iowa to New Orleans to Memphis, all the way up to Seattle. To um, Sacramento, and then back to Albuquerque, where we were. You know, you're all over the place. You're jumping time zones now, and um, you know that was that was definitely gave you a really good um, how uh, how what would be in the big leagues instead of you would charter in the big leagues, which just makes it a little bit easier. But um, you know, it was just. But the thing is, is you kind of take it all in, and it's it's part of it. There's so many different kind of um, stories. Waking up in the middle of the night, and um, you know people sleepwalking and then they wear their suit, put their suit on. You're like, what are you doing, man? And they're like, we don't leave for two more days. You know, they got their days mixed up or whatnot. And, um, just, uh, just little things like that. What was one of your best performances you ever had when you were in the minors? Um, I think, uh, there, there's, I guess, well, um, just from a stat standpoint, I guess not walking anybody was, I didn't know that for my first season in pro ball, um, and then with the Utica, uh, blue Sox, you know, 61 innings, no walks. Um, <clears throat> that was just uh, something that just kind of happened, I guess. Um, the, another one would probably have been one of my, my no hitter that I had, um, 
during that game. You know, it was it was an odd game too because I remember in the bullpen, and it was one of those things where things weren't going going like you expect. You know, because then you're like, oh shoot, um, you know. And we were kind of trying to make a lighthearted, and my my catcher told me he's like, should I get somebody warmed up? You know, tell <laughs> pitching coach to get someone warmed up, and I'm like, I don't know. And then uh, we end up going out there, and I think we turned like six double plays. I walked like a career high of like four or five batters, but I struck out like nine. And um, that was, you know, Ryan Terrahoe was on that team, uh, Fontenot. Um, I know Jeremy Hermida was playing right field for me. He got called up later on. But it was just one of those games that this kind of like anything that was hit hard, it was turned. Or um, Hermida made a sliding catch in right field. Um, it was just one of those things that kind of, uh, um, you know, just kind of happened, and uh, I think I'll, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. It's it's crazy hearing that name, Jeremy Hermita, because I, I we played fantasy baseball way before fantasy baseball was popular, and he was a top prospect for about five or six years. It seemed like he was on everybody's radar. I asked I asked you that question because I didn't know if you were going to say the no hitter because you walked five guys in that game and I had heard on the Moonlight Graham show you had said that I did throw a no hitter but I don't I didn't think that was the best game that I had ever thrown so I I was going to mention the no hitter but um yeah that's that's an unbelievable story did you keep the baseball do you still have the baseball I do I have the the, line, the lineup card and uh and then they gave us a lineup card and the funny thing about that is that year um <clears throat> so our, uh, our rotation and our, our my manager, which was Muggsy, um, was Alderson. He said something like to the fact of like, out of all these prospects, you throw the no hitter because <laughs> our rotation was like uh, Josh Johnson, Scott Olson, Logan Kinsing, um, and I think at the time Jason Vargas was up there as well. So like, you had all these guys in there and myself, but you know, um, it was just kind of a, a way that it happened in it. So, I mean, you're always going to, that's the only one I've ever thrown too. So I, I wondered if the, uh, Marlins executives got that. It was like, hold on a second. This, this must be a typo. They have all of our best pitchers down in the minors and, and Nick Ungs through the no hitter. You're sure that's right. With some of those names that, that you mentioned there. Now, what is one story from your years of, of playing in the minor leagues that would almost seem like it would be too good to be true? Well, um, obviously, besides the true. no hitter, uh, too good to be true. I guess uh, um, is well when we get to double A. Well, there's two kind of different stories. There's the one that you're like, whoa, this this happened. Like I said, we played five games. We we're in double A. We played the Chattanooga Lookouts probably like four or five times. Like, I mean, we played them six times, uh, 60 times, I guess, when it comes down to it. And we played them five game series. And we were, for some reason, we were on a roll. I think Josh Johnson hit a home run um, on one game, and then things kind of started escalating and stuff like that. They tried to hit one of our guys. We tried to hit one of their guys. And then the guy threw at him, and he missed three times, and he finally hit him, and then it was on. And uh, I've never, I've never been part of a, a brawl before, but that was just one of the things where you're just running out there and you just see haymakers being fly, flown. I just remember grabbing the catcher because he was ready to hit um, another guy, and I kind of tackled the catcher. And then next thing you know, like everything's kind of, you know, all the 
bullpens are running. It's so funny because the bullpens will run side by side until they get to the infield and they'll start fighting. So like, <laughs> but that was one of the things that it was just like, what's going on right now? And uh, so they pulled everybody off and then um, they called a timeout. Like we out. so less, unless you were in the game or warming up, everybody, the people had to stay in the locker room and we got to watch it on the feed. But so we had to sit, everybody had to sit in the, um, <clears throat> in the locker room unless you were playing. So that was one of the one of the crazy stories that I've I've been a part of. I, I heard you on the Moonlight Graham show say that there would be a fight breaking out. There'd be a pile of guys fighting. They'd get pulled off the pile, and then they'd go into a different pile to start fighting. And you, I believe you said that the fighting went on for maybe was it like forty five minutes before they finally got it all calmed down and all settled and people into their uh, locker rooms. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, uh, cause you know, you, you think you're starting to settle down and then one person pops off or someone pushes somebody else and then it starts up back again. But yeah, it was, it was kind of pile from pile and you kind of have to have, have your head on a swivel because, um, I mean, you don't know some of these guys on the other team, you know, you don't, some of them have bats, some of them brought, so it was, it was one of those situations that I never thought I'd be a part of, you know, playing the game as long as you did, but it was kind of something that, you know, it happened. You see it always on like YouTube or older clips and stuff, but, um, you know, being a part of it was a lot different. Yeah. Too bad there weren't smartphones back then. That, that'd be a classic one to pull up on YouTube. Now, Nick, I do want you to reflect on your career here. You had the stats to justify you getting called up to the, to the major leagues. Why do you think that that never happened? Um, you know, I, for a while of time, I, I was asked myself that question too. But, you know, I mean, I think there's a couple different things. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you know, you have to be a little bit lucky as well. You know, if it's your time in the rotation, um, you know, can you – are they willing to take somebody off the roster to put you on? Um, you know, and, and it comes down to it's, it's a business. So, you know, when I got drafted, I got drafted by um, John Henry. He was the owner came back before I went to my first spring training. That's when the trade, that's when the uh, regime change happened. So the Expos owners bought the Marlins and then, and then John Henry bought Boston. So now you're coming into an organization where you're, you know, you're not an investment anymore. So, um, that was kind of a thing. So we roll in and, um, nobody knows who drafted you. If you got drafted last year, if you got drafted two years ago, you're just a name on a board. Um, of where they think that you should go. Um, so you're always kind of competing with, um, you know, the business aspect of it of, well, if I drafted, if I drafted the 2002 guys and we call up a guy from 2001 draft and he's not part of us, do we look bad? And, you know, and that's just part of the business. This is always going to happen. And, um, you know, for me to stay with the Marlins and play with those guys for nine years, um, I know uh, at one time I was – I think toward the end of my career, I was the only original Marlin left in the organization um, that got drafted by the, the other one. So, but uh, I know the GM did say um, one one year after uh, that they weren't going to call me up, and uh, they said, "But you know what? You always been a great insurance insurance policy for us." And I'm like, "Well, I appreciate that, I guess." So, <laughs> but but yeah, no, it's just it's just one of those things, and you know, you give it your all, and you just hope you, everything lines up. 
Nick, you also did have a chance to go play independent ball and also to play overseas. How was the game different overseas compared to the game in the U.S.? Um, was it, uh, I guess, um, overseas, I, I think with uh, Taiwan was, I played over in Taiwan. Taiwan's a little different. Um, uh, I guess when you're over there, different kind of strategies. It always feels like there are no doubles. Like everybody was way back and they didn't want anything hit over their head. They, they'll, they'll let it drop in front. Um, you know, some of the guys, their swings were always on plane. So there wasn't a lot of guys over there that could hit the ball. Um, you know, like were true, 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 big home run hitters. They had, they had some, but the majority of guys were guys that are going to go to put in play. There's such a pest um, just uh, trying to, keep the ball in the zone. They don't strike out much on um, stuff. So that was kind of uh, one of the things that, you know, like always the one thing I stuck out, I guess the most was um, uh, more is always better. So like when I got over there, I was throwing bullpens or like, you know, 90 pitch bullpens. Um, you play catch for like 45 minutes. Practice was like six hours long. I mean, it was it's it's extensive, and if you're not used to training like that, it it gets a lot. But um, you know, you, you try to you try to immerse yourself with those guys. I mean, I, I couldn't say everything's in Chinese, but the funny part about that is when you got in the baseball field, like you could still communicate with like hand gestures and nods, and the game kind of ran itself. Um, the funny part of that is when we had a, a mound visit, um, our uh, our pitching coach was uh, Japanese, so the Taiwanese would come out, and he would and uh, translator, and then the Japanese Chinese. So it was like six guys on the mound, just <laughs> going through like a whole circle, just to, hey, how do you feel? Then da 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 all the way through, then all the way back. I'm like, oh, good, da 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 da. All right, this is what we're gonna do. It was just like a thing of like telephone. Um, hopefully, that I got translated back the way that we were talking to each other, but it was kind of a, a funny thing. When uh, Venezuela, I think we, I got to play Venez, uh, winter winter ball. I guess in Puerto Rico and Venezuela, and then Australia. Venezuela was by far one of the best experiences of my life. I mean, I think it got me to a spot where um, you understand the culture of a lot of your teammates that you've had over the years. You know, like um, you know, it's it's hard because they come into the states. They don't have a car. They can't speak the language. So, and then when I went down there, they kind of they helped you out. So, like you, you kind of created this uh, um, thing with them, a good friendship because then they helped you out. So when they came back, you came back to the states, and they came back, and you were, and they just they thought it was great having you guys down us down there. But the stands were full. I mean, there'd be like thirteen to like twenty three thousand people there. It'd be like at a soccer game. I mean, I remember on a Wednesday we scored and they're throwing beer and everything up in the air. And it's a Wednesday game. I mean, they're so ecstatic. And when you're talking about as you're getting after Thanksgiving down there. So I got down there like October 15th and I stayed till Christmas. After Thanksgiving, all the big leaguers from Venezuela start playing. So now you're facing, um, you know, uh, the Panda from, was it, uh, that was with the Giants. Yeah, Pablo um, Sandoval. Yeah. Um, um, all these guys are coming out and playing. Um, was it? it was fun. El Duque was on my team one year, so I got to I got to play with him. Um, was it? A, and then just get to meet different, be kind of in that atmosphere. Um, I think Australia was probably the 
it was, I knew it was kind of toward the end of my career. So it was one of those things that I had a buddy named uh, Justin Huber that I played with and against for many years. He was in the big leagues with the Royals and the Mets. And he's like, come on over, play. We're trying to get this league back up and going. Um, and so I went over there and they gave us a host family. And I, I tell you, it was, it was one of the best trips. You know, the easy part is everybody speaks English too. So be able to travel around there. Now, when it comes to independent ball, um, the big thing about independent ball is you, you just play and you're trying to get noticed. Um, you know, and, and the, the hard thing about independent ball is it's either there or nowhere. Right. So I played there. I just had surgery the year before. So I wanted to make sure my arm was, so my VLO came back. I tried to get everything, try to get that feel all back, but you know, to be seen in an in, in independent ball, um, <clears throat> You know, you got to be your stats have to be phenomenal, or you have to have one of those traits like being able to throw 95, 96, 97. So <clears throat> that was one of the things that um, kind of was different about being an independent ball. But I had a buddy that always told me in AAA, he goes, if you think that you should be somewhere else, go to the Atlantic League and look at all the names up there, and it will surprise you of how many guys that have so many, so many years of big league time that you know, are just still looking for jobs and they're still trying to play and, and different things like that. And I mean, Dontrell Wills played for the Long Island Ducks up there, but, you know, just trying to get a little bit of a scene and they use, they've used that for, you know, for that aspect as well, just to try to grab guys out of there that have, you know, tenure within professional baseball. Yeah. Nick, we, we couldn't end this podcast unless we talked about the time you uh, represented team USA now, who are some of the names that we might recognize from that team that you played on? Um, let me see here. Uh, let me, I guess. Uh, so Nick Adenhart, um, he was with the Angels. He was he he died in a car accident. Yeah, I think yep. a while back he was he was part of it. Um, Michael Bourne. Okay. Uh, yeah. Billy Butler, um, Bobby Hill for the Cubs fans, right? Oh yeah. Uh, Mike Kincaid. Um, let me see. Brian Lahare, he would play for the Cubs. Uh, Mark Reynolds, um, Jared Salkamakia, Skip Schumacher, um, Kevin Slowey, played for Twins. Uh, Kurt Suzuki. Um, I mean that Chad Allen. Uh, those some of the guys that uh, you know played while we were uh, um, and then. Uh, you know, played while while we were on that team. It was a great team. It was a great group of guys. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Michael Bourne had a huge big league career, ton of stolen bases. Billy Butler was great for many years for the uh, Kansas City Royals. What was it like uh, playing in that tournament? Um, well, we had to go. I played with we we. I was in the Arizona Fall League, and we played uh, on the qualifier. Then we all for the next year went to AAA and then we had to go to Cuba. So we went down to Cuba and um, Cuba is an interesting place. It feels like you just jump back in the 1960s. All the cars are really old. They're all mint condition. And um, everybody just lives on top of each other. Um, there's parts of that, that uh, Island, you know, being only what, like 90 miles from, uh, from the U S um, it's, it's actually, it can be really, really beautiful, but, um, you know, it is a it is a little bit of a rundown country. So, you know, being in a um, you know in the top hotels wasn't 
probably the best hotel, but it still was really nice. But just being out there and seeing how uh, much um, how the culture was and being um, just being able to wear that USA. You know, I wore a lot of jerseys throughout my whole career. But there's just that something else that having that USA on your jersey and, you know, going into a different country. And um, and that time, you know, with Davey Johnson and um, Rick Eckstein being our managers, we were, you know, and that was the time that they were like, well, there's going to be a vote after the next Olympics about baseball. So we have to be, you know, we have to get USA into the Olympics. So, you know, that was a kind of a big thing on our shoulders. So when we went in there, we were all about business. And then when we um, end up um, beating you know, Cuba on their own soil in front of 35,000 people, I think there was a little section above our dugout that had probably 25 Americans with a, a flag that were really, really loud. Um, Brandon Wood missed a he, – he had a bunt sign on, and he tried to bunt two times and missed and then hit a, um, hit a one or hit a, like a 2-2 breaking ball out for us to go ahead and it was probably the one of the craziest things i've ever been a part of <clears throat> and fidel castro was watching that game too wasn't he we we actually got to go on one of the bases and they um we, we scrimmaged i think one of their military um for a practice game and uh um <clears throat> it was a military baseball field and up behind home plate a little bit higher was this um press box and in the press box there was these windows but the windows curtains were really slowly mm. shut so there was probably about two feet that you could probably see out of and we were all trying to get a peek to see if we could see in there but there was i think it was it was heavily tinted but uh but yeah it was uh it was definitely an intimidated type of uh thing is driving in there with all the military and stuff and you mentioned Davy Johnson. You have an interesting Davy Johnson story. And Davy Johnson, a former big league manager, he had a great uh, managerial career. Um, what? Tell us uh, that interesting encounter you had with him. Uh, um, so we were. Uh, so when we first got to, um, believe it or not, at this time I was. I think I was 27 years old, um, 27 or 26. And I was a little, I was 27. And uh, Davey, before we um, um, played, coaches like, okay, hey, we got some of these young prospects, guys, you know, we're going to start Aiden Hart and Slowey. You know, being that you're, you've been in AAA, you've been older, um, would you be all right coming out of the bullpen? I'm like, yeah, no problem. So <clears throat> I threw against Brazil and, uh, um, and so did that out. And then I think I had two days rest, but I threw some pitches threw a little bit more pitches than, um, than he would like me. So we're doing our pregame routine and stuff. And, uh, you know, we're in tight quarters and stuff. And, and you're, you're with, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know, David Johnson was, uh, um, you know, manager of the year in the big leagues. And, um, you know, you just knew a lot about them. And next thing I know, <clears throat> I'm in the, the bathroom stall, and I'm just sitting there trying, you know, I guess pregame routine and stuff. And uh, and all of a sudden I get here, hey, Nick. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you good for a couple today? And I'm kind of looking around, and I generally glance 
up and he is standing on a stool looking down in the stall at me and he's we're looking face to face and he's like you good for a couple today i'm like yes skip he's like all right we'll see you out there and then we walked back and i was like oh did that just happen but it was just one of those things that you kind of just shrugged off but it was uh it's it definitely a great story that's that's awesome he couldn't wait two minutes i know sometimes when i get in public i get stage fright that would be the ultimate stage fright uh, right there, your manager creeping in on you uh, to ask if you're ready to go uh, while you're going to the bathroom. Yeah, no, at the end of the day, there was, it was, we were just a bunch of great guys, great teammates. And, uh, you know, I actually got into that game and I did throw four innings and we <clears throat> we ended up clinching um, and, uh, you know, going on to the championship to play uh, Cuba, you know, in the, in the championship next night. So, hey! Is this heaven? No. It's the Around the Horn section of the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Five random questions that the guests were not prepped for. First question, Nick. In 2003, the Marlins won the World Series. Did you get a World Series ring? I did not, no. They don't give them to minor leaguers? No. No, we uh, we actually, I got a, I got a, um, a Southern Link Championship ring. We won the the Southern Link Championship, Double A Championship that year. So, um, but no, they uh, they give them to your big leagues, and then um, they get a Tier One ring, and then I think the then they'll go some some kind of uh, Tier Two ring, Tier Three ring. But yeah, they weren't going to give all two hundred sixty eight people of rings <laughs> oh, that's, that's surprising i thought i thought everybody would have got one i know sometimes i've had the ushers at wrigley field show me their world series ring so i assume that that that's a little different they um they'll give all those guys they have a certain like i said they have certain stat um stages of rings and i think they usually give the workers and um people that do the stadium that's you know part of it which hey, you know what that's I don't know if I would want one that I wasn't part of that team. So Yeah, that's that's awesome that they do those for those crew. Second question, who hit the furthest home run off you? Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> let me see. I did play in Albuquerque, um, and uh, there was a couple of mammoth shots. I think we were close to 6,000 feet. Up in uh, up in altitude, so balls balls flew out pretty pretty good. Stephen Drew hit one. Mm. Uh, I, I thought I broke his bat, and he he thought I broke his bat. I think I cracked it because I thought I got in on him, and it went dead center. I think it ended up they ended up sending it was like close to five hundred feet. Um, <clears throat> it was it was unbelievable. Um, and uh, pitching coach came out told me next time I think about throwing that pitch, just turn around and throw it outside, throw it over the. That's yourself because he hit that a long way. That's a name that I have not heard in a long time, but wow, he he was good. Question three, who was a current or former big leaguer that you had their number in the minors? You had good numbers against them. Actually, it was funny because it was uh, um, Ryan Howard. Um, I uh, it was It was crazy because when – we we met in the in high A. He was in Clearwater in the Florida State League, and I, I was there as well. Not in Clearwater. We were playing them, but we would meet all so often. And I, and I would just I just throw him changeups. I kind of pitch him backwards a little bit, and it's it's funny too because he was kind of a pull guy, and just like anything, 
you know, he adjusts very well. The next thing you know, he's hitting these change-ups out to left field and he's not just pulling everything anymore. So, um, but that, that was one guy that I, I had his number a lot. That, that, I was thinking you were going to say it was Steven Drew, and he was one for 17 off you with that 500-foot home run. Now, question for Nick. Not a lot of people realize this about you, but you were actually in your minor league career were sometimes used as a pinch hitter. You have a hilarious story about, I believe it was your first home run that you ever hit. Do you mind sharing that with us? Um, no, we were, we were in double a and, uh, um, <clears throat> so at Carolina Mudcat stadium, the walls are really, really high and, uh, <clears throat> um, nobody ever hits them out of center field. And, and when I got out to bat, like I always liked to look like I was a hitter cause I felt like I, you know, felt like I was a hitter in high school and all that stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, every pitcher wants to hit. So I had this Sam bat. I had my batting gloves, and the catcher actually, Brian Peterson, was making crap out of me. Like, oh, what the heck's this? Like, you, why are you using someone's good bat? You're just gonna bunt. Well, I ended up swinging, and I and it was off Luke's Hudson. I remember that right now. So pitching the big leagues with Cincinnati, and uh, I took off on the bat. I knew I hit it good, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna hit the wall. So I took off going, and I slid into second base, and the fireworks <laughs> went off, and I'm like, oh shoot. So everybody in the dugout was laughing. Uh, Chip Ambers was looking at me like he goes, "I have tried to hit it out of center field so many times and I can't." So, but that was that was one of the probably a little embarrassing, but yet, um, but uh, a great story. That's awesome. The the slide into second base on a home run. Did you get the ball? Um, uh, I don't first I think first professional I, home I think, run. No, I I think I I think I did. I think they did put it in my locker. Um, I don't know if it's still my dad's or not. But. Very, very cool. And then the last question of the Around the Horn segment is, I think what I really like about Twitter is you can go on and you can watch videos of these pitchers and just really analyze and break down their movement and how crazy some of these pitches are breaking. What pitcher and pitch had the craziest movement that you ever saw live while you were playing? I think it was uh, 2006 in um, the Pacific Coast League. Um, we, if you if you look at that, if anybody Google's it, Ari Dickey was the um, pitcher of the year in the Pacific in the PCL. So in, in the in the PCL, there's a lot of. I mean, you might be pitching in altitude one day, and then you might be pitching in Des Moines or Memphis or New Orleans. So you're getting a lot of different um, kind of uh, you know altitude humidity different thing but one guy i remember being in nashville we were playing against them and his knuckleball and he threw it hard and everybody knows ra from his cy young year but it was one of those things that it was it was moving so much and they always say it's like trying to catch salmon jumping in the in the in the water but that thing just moved so much and there was no rotation on it and i mean you you couldn't predict where it was going to go but it was absolutely ridiculous how he could Now you mentioned Nashville. Nashville is one of my favorite travel spots in the entire world. Now I'm not as well traveled as you are, but how do you stay focused playing baseball in Nashville? How do you do that? Um, That was always a, it was always a great time 
on the road. Everybody loved going to Nashville because you knew that um, you were going to go watch some live music probably as well. Um, was it actually getting to live there for about a year and a half? Um, it was one of those things that it's it's just it's just a great place, you know. And I think um, the more you're there. Um, I always felt that it felt like home when I lived there, you know, and I played actually for the sounds. Um, so you knew that, you know, the music's always going to be there, but like you said, it was just kind of part of it. And it made it exciting for road trips too, that you knew, well, I didn't have to pitch tomorrow. So you could go down and listen to a little honky tonk and enjoy the, the city a little bit, but it was definitely a, a trip on everybody's schedule that they circled. That, yeah, that would be awesome. Not being the, the starting pitcher road trip to Nashville, catch a pedal pub, up to Tootsie's, go listen to some uh, some great honky tonk there. Now, one thing we know it's really difficult to make it in the baseball uh, world to make it to the big leagues. The music industry, holy cow! You go to Nashville, and there's I'm going to say sixty to a hundred bars on one street. Each bar has three floors of live music, and every single band is playing just as good, if not better, than what you hear on the radio every day. And that just really blew my mind on how outstanding that the music was there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy. It's a it's a really a cutthroat type of industry as well. And and I know what I realized when I lived there was I go to get my taxes done, and you know, my guy that he's like, oh, I'm originally from San Diego. I'm like, oh, what are you doing in Nashville? Singer songwriter. You go to get your tires fixed. Same thing. He's just you know doing another occupation. Singer songwriter. So it, it's definitely you get a lot of different cultures, a lot of different. Um, People from all over, you know, chasing that same dream. And it's definitely a a cutthroat business. Stick around for our last segment as Nick Ongs joins us for closing time. We know when we hear Mariano Rivera's music in the background, the podcast is coming to an end, just like the game did when he entered. Stick around for closing time. It's become tradition here at the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast that every single time we have a guest on, we give them a cheesy baseball-related nickname, and then they have the floor uninterrupted for as long as they would like to talk to give us an inspirational speech, to give us a tip, or to share a story that they would like us all to hear. Again, I would like to thank Nick Ungs one last time for joining us. And for closing time, we're going to go up and in with Ongs. Uh, thank you. So during, uh, I guess, the last uh, how many couple months um, after uh, being part of, of Iowa baseball and I have to go in and um, things kind of happen really fast from <clears throat> us being not able to jump on a plane and go to Northridge to immediately um, thinking that we're just not going to make this trip to the whole season being canceled. Um, I think it was one of the most emotional type of uh, um, things that that Coach Heller, you know, had to address with the the guys. And um, he said it kind of felt like when they, he had to go in and tell Northern Iowa that there was no longer a program. But one thing that has come out of this 
that I think we all can relate to is that, um, you know, if you have gratitude, it changes everything. And to make sure that, you know, nothing is for granted, they take nothing for granted anymore because like we've seen, you know, all sports have been pushed to the side um, for other reasons and different like things, different things. You only get this game, you only get to play the game for a certain amount of time. So enjoy it, have fun with it. And, uh, you know, don't try to stress out, let the pieces fall how they do and um, just enjoy the lovely game of baseball. Six four three, we're out of here. Post game show is brought to you by Christ. I can't find it. The hell with it. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. You can find us on social media, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Coach Manaman. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, find us on Spotify, and subscribe.